Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm great. How about you? I'm good. Uh, so I was on my iPhone, mm-hmm. went to my Facebook app, mm-hmm. read uh, an ad, clicked it, and bought something from Amazon. Huh. Wonder why all those companies were reporting good numbers this week? It's probably well, I call, because of me. I, I, think, I think Amazon should change its name. I know Coca-Cola has the rights to it. But I'd fight hard for to get the the name Santa because it's Santa. It's it's like Christmas every day at I, my place. I thought you were gonna say the real thing. No, Santa. <laughs> like it's crazy. Gifts show up. I mean, that's what my wife calls them. Oh, there's more gifts. More here. gifts. That's a nice <laughs> phrase. Yeah. I like that. Every day. Yes, it's Something amazing. Pops up. Well, thank you, Pop Witch House, because yeah. Amazon stock popped really nicely on on uh, Friday during the daytime when uh, when the numbers were released Thursday night, and that was part of the thing. We got some good tech. Numbers from a few companies. They well, were rewarded uh, very well yeah. uh, in pre-market trading and early trading on Friday. Um, very interesting because they're being rewarded for their numbers versus what the Federal Reserve's interest rates are doing. Yeah. You know, if the Friday morning reaction, pre-market and early morning trading, to me, was really interesting. I said at the beginning of the week, when I was reporting, it's going to be a consequential week phase. And it was going to, you know, you and I discuss it all the time. Of course, we've got tons of earnings coming in. 20% of the S&P companies, big tech included. You've got uh, a, a number of, led by the Fed, central bank meetings and potential decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly communication. And then you've got all kinds of economic data, jobs numbers, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it stood to reason that we were going to have some volatility this week just because there was so much stuff coming out. Um, the Friday morning, uh, you know, response, we, we got a stronger than expected set of data in us jobs. Yeah. And, uh, my morning report when I was, uh, when I was doing it was, is there too much good news for the market to be able to go up today? Hmm. Right now in that report, of course, wage inflation was a little bit higher in the United States than what was anticipated, but I thought it was really interesting. If you, if you look at the, the numbers, the big tech companies generally doing well, perhaps Apple and the, the pressure they're facing in China, uh, a little bit of the outlier. But if you take it, even with that wage inflation data, and you look at the productivity of the U.S. economy, right? The most recent data saying 3.2%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, when I take 4.5 and I subtract 3.2%, I get inflation under 2% already. Mm-hmm. And so my, my comment was, I wonder how the market today, you know, on this uh, Friday morning is going to put all of that data together. And it's not just for Friday, but going forward as well. And that's the complexity of the scenario we're in. Can, can, can investors now stop worrying about what month they're going to cut interest rates and just know that they're going to cut interest rates? Right. The because next move is down. It's, right? it's down. And it does it matter if it's March, May, 2025? Does it really matter on the grand scheme of things? Right. I think this is where... We're going to get caught up, we meaning people who follow the markets, we're going to get caught up with the what's the next data piece that could that could move the market for that next hour, three hours, maybe even the day or the week. Can we just stop doing that? I think it's it's getting to a point now where people are, it's turning into more of a, of a bet system versus a thesis system. Let's bet when they're going to cut interest rates. Is it March? Is it May? What? Uh, Right. Let's put the probability. The probabilities are now this for, you know, for a May cut versus a March cut. Probability for cut. That's it. Leave it at that. Yeah. Because it's not going to make a big difference if it's March or May. It doesn't make a difference. Right. Uh, what might make a difference if they, you know, if, you're, if your model is predicting six cuts and they're going to do two, right? So 
directionally. We always talk about directionally, right? Get the direction down and get it approximately right most of the time. Yeah. Because if you're going on the GPS system where March is the cut, you know, May is the cut, and it doesn't happen, okay, it, it just, it doesn't line up. Like you said, then it's, it's, a, it's a bet. You're being way too precise, trying yeah. to be way too precise. Correct. And I think that's where the, the problem will continue to happen until they get to a cut. Right. And then the argument will be, well, how much now? Now we know when. Right. How much now? Will it be four cuts, six cuts? Right. The number of cuts that you expect a central bank to take on has a direct correlation to how bad you think the economy is going to be. Central banks do not cut interest rates if the economy is just humming along. They don't do that. That's not their objective. So when you got good jobs number, you got good productivity, you've got inflation under control, what's the need to cut? Now, we are, we've been saying this for a while. A lot of our peers in the industry have been talking about massive amount of cuts, deep recession, right. or we're still going to have high inflation. We said, look at the data of what the Federal Reserve is looking at and tell me why they would actually cut in the first half of the year versus the second half. Right. And even if they are going to cut in the second half, and it could be three, four, or even six cuts, meaning a quarter point per, uh, per cut, it's not significant from where they are. You don't go from five and a half, five and a quarter, down by, by one and a half percent it's it's going back to normal right yeah and i think that that's an important important point is uh, i love the discussion changing now around um interest rates cutting sorry interest rate cuts in the us coming um not because the economy is slowing down but because inflation is actually under control and they want to get that overnight rate down from restrictive territory where it is today just back down to their neutral rate, where it doesn't add or subtract and let the economy do its thing. If the rate is restrictive, right, that's going to be the biggest argument. Of course. Right? What, what is the, the risk or the uh, neutral rate? Right? And, and what I loved about Friday's, mm -hmm. Thursday night and Friday's earnings release is that look at everything that's happening in the world and all the reasons why people say, don't invest in the stock market. Right. It's very bad. There's too much risk. These companies are making more money. Let's get back to the basics of let's invest in good companies that can grow their earnings over time and that you'll be rewarded because you're getting a bigger piece. And when a company says, surprise, we're going to initiate a dividend, you get rewarded nicely. Mm -hmm. We're going to give you a piece of the profits as well as grow the value of this company. Yeah. Wow. Right. Shocking. We're going back to what basic investing in companies have been since the beginning of time. Yeah. And I like the fact that these companies that have released their earnings are now showing that they can still grow. They can still hit the bottom line. They will hit their earnings requirements, generally speaking, regardless of which way interest rates were. How do you make the kind of money these big companies have made when you have 8% inflation? Right. You and I were talking about this last year when, interest, when inflation was so high. And I'm like, they're going to cut. They're going to, these companies are going to be able to right size their business so they can reach the, the earnings estimates that they've pushed out to their shareholders. Isn't that what every business does? Well, good ones. I yeah. mean, Meta was the, the ones poster that are boy for well. that, right? They came out, I mean, Zuckerberg came out 
early 23, said, this is the year of efficiency. And guess what? Delivered those results. Huge reward. Huge reward. So I think this is where it's now quality versus just the market. It's quality versus interest rates. Good companies can do good things even in bad times. Right. Yeah, they can. Um, The... uh, what else can we say about this week? I think that the um, you know the the economic data is going to continue to create uh, uh, some volatility for the first half of this year, because it is certainly not. If you look at twenty twenty three, how many economists said this is the year of recession? Yeah, right. And it is quite probable now, even with the Canadian economy, which looked significantly weaker than the U.S., that we might even skirt that recessionary problem in twenty twenty three right? Strong November and a forecasted strong December means we don't get two back-to-back quarters. So compass, (laughs) compass, right? Direction. Yeah. 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 Get it, get it directionally right. Not GPS is an important theme. Can I, can I place a hint for everyone of what my thoughts are about 2024, 2025, when it comes to this whole issue of, of controlling inflation and the economic growth, we are heading into two different elections, one in the U S this year, Canada the year after. Um, I don't know too many governments as they head into an election, A, wanting a recession, B, not trying to buy votes. And I, I say that tongue in cheek because they're going to provide, they call it stimulus. I call it buy votes. It's going to happen. Now, what's the US government going to do federally? Well, they can do a lot of stuff in the areas and the regions that they need to win votes. votes. Does that sound like what's going to happen federally as well? Yep. If they know they're going to have a challenge in certain parts, let's pick on Quebec. Why would they? Why would they not do that? Right. Like everybody would do that. So right. that, here's I think this is the opportunity. Get ready. Politics might push out the economics over the next two years. There's an interesting report that's come out looking at um, the risks that the wealthy uh, see, what they're trying to protect against. Right. Wealth report. Um, and there were some things that caught my attention in that report. We've got Melanie Wilcox, who's the Executive Vice President, Personal Risk Services, uh, here today to help us understand a little bit about the content of the first inaugural, I guess inaugural means first, uh, wealth report. <laughs> Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave and Faisal. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe we can just start at a high level, Faisal, with, um, with this report um, done by, uh, by Chubb. Um, Maybe you could just give us a high-level overview to start, uh, Melanie, of this report, uh, why you put it together, and and maybe just a high-level takeaway uh, from the uh, the results. Sure. So in our latest survey, Chubb surveyed over 800 wealthy individuals across North America, U.S., and Canada, and we surveyed them on their perspective on wealth, what matters to them most, and their preferred source for financial advice. Uh, What I found interesting as a highlight was that the report also uncovered that two-thirds of the respondents are finding it very difficult to attain and protect their financial success, and they're looking for guidance that they can seek to close the protection gap, if you will, and how to mitigate the risk so that they can sleep better at night. Uh, This, from our perspective in the insurance industry, guides them to the importance of seeking advice from an insurance advisor, like an insurance broker, to help them find those solutions. So, Melanie, when you talk about protection, there, of course, people talk. When you, the question is asked about their their wealth, what do they look at most? Is it is it like real estate and real property, or is it protection in other parts of their wealth? 
what what's the what was the uh, the driver when when they used that question and they said I'm looking for protection? Sure, and that can take many forms. Of course, uh, wealthy individuals are concerned about the instability that losing money on their investments can present, but also their homes. This is a, a very important investable asset, an insurable asset that they've. Uh, protected and they want to protect because they enjoy that, but also other passion projects, if you will. You can be a collector. And one of the interesting highlights of the report report was that 81% of our respondents identify as collectors, meaning they collect jewelry or fine art or wine and cars. Uh, So it can take many forms. So Melody, did you know that Dave is a collector too of ugly, ugly socks? <laughs> no insurance company wants to secure that because it touches his body. So, uh, but but it's 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 interesting as you talk about. There's other items beyond just an investment portfolio that needs to be protected. Um, Dave, did you know that um, there are more millionaires in North America than ever in history? Yeah, just in the last few years, there's been a big spike. Of big that. spike, yeah. And a lot of it has to do with the real estate markets. Yep. A lot of it has to do with the boom in the in the markets and the appreciation of pretty much all asset classes have gone up. And so what's interesting out of the report, Melanie, on this is that although there are so many more millionaires in North America, they're feeling more insecure about their, their future. So, you know, what's keeping them up at night about that? Like, why is that actually happening? Because I, th- I would assume... When you become a millionaire, you feel more secure, not insecure. Secure, yeah. Yes, exactly. That that was a real highlight of the report. Um, of course, we think about what economic instability and inflation can have uh, on the minds of the wealthy. But a real resounding um, metric was that three quarters of respondents were concerned about the exposure to extreme weather and particularly because of climate change and how that is a top risk to their home. Uh, So when we think about the last summer that we just had in Canada and the wildfires that touch so many communities and individuals, I mean, that is a real thing. And you think about the compounding effects um, of frequent events, whether it's wildfires or rainstorms, all of that uh, extreme weather can increase that concern. Now, the good news is there are ways to protect your homes and those uh, important passions that everyone is investing in, the wealthy. And you can, for example, in wildfire scenarios, create what we call in the insurance industry defensible space. So that really means just clearing the space around your home to make sure that nothing can catch on fire in terms of trees or shrubbery. Uh, There's other risk mitigation factors like sprinkler systems and even in some cases changing your roof type. But 22% of respondents are actually taking steps to do that. That's just one example of some of the concerns that they have. So that, that's an interesting stat, uh, given that 22%, 78% are worrying about some of these things, if I understand what you just said correctly, and uh, or, or 100% are worrying about it, but 78% are worrying about it and not doing anything about it. What, um, how, you know, what's the message, I guess, to get out to those people that, that are sitting worrying? Where should they start? What, you know, what should they be doing here? Yes, exactly. A lot of this barrier comes down to knowledge, understanding the risk gap, but also knowing which professionals to turn to for that guidance. So as we can imagine, and we know wealthy individuals, they are successful people. They rely on their own knowledge and education to manage their wealth, but only 52% rely on the advice from an insurance advisor or a broker for that guidance. So one of the recommendations that we have is to check in as often with your insurance advisor as you would with your wealth advisor. And that really should take place as assets change. It's just as important 
uh, to not go through an auto renew approach, but just check in and see what are the solutions available, what gaps may have been presented, and then focus on the solutions that can be provided to you from those that are connected to the right insurance providers who can offer appropriate policies and risk mitigation techniques. Melanie, there's a whole bunch of passion projects out there. I mentioned Dave and his socks collection, all the way to fine art and wine and cars and a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Nike shoes oh, uh, listen, have been phenomenal growth absolutely. during the pandemic. Uh, expensive watches like a Rolex was just booming in, in price and so forth. For those who are starting or already established a collection, one of the biggest concerns that they have is protecting it. What are the steps they need to take in order to protect these kind of passion projects or things that are not conventional, like the bricks and mortar of a home or a vehicle or art or, or arts and so forth? Sure. That's a great question. And we certainly are seeing a shift in collecting habits, spirits and jewelry and watches are, as I mentioned, 80 percent of respondents are identifying as collectors, but staying connected to the right advisors, even on the collection side, to ensure that valuations are uh, in the right place. You know, there could be fluctuations with various artists or various uh, collectible types. And also taking steps to protect those passions within your home. If you're hanging artwork, let's make sure that it's secured to the wall properly. And if you need some assistance with that, reach out to your insurance advisor who can put you in touch with specialists that specialize in that work again, so that you can enjoy it for many years to come. Yeah, so protection is not just insurance itself. It's taking a defensive view, a preventive view, and an insurance view on things, which I think is very important. Um, what was the most, um, I, I'll ask you, the weirdest collection piece that you've seen out there from an, from an insurance perspective? Like, we actually insure this? Oh, my God. Like, has anything crossed your your plate? Everyone asks this question from time to time. I mean, collectibles can range from so many different things. We can see, you know, passions around uh, antiquities, you know, a, a dinosaur um, bone collection, if you can afford it. And obviously that requires some interesting protection that needs to keep it safe because it's fairly old. I mean, that's one example. And, you know, there's lots of amazing cars out there that people love to uh, to look at, not always drive. You might want to get some insurance on your Star Trek doll collection. On too. my dinosaur bones? I thought you were going to comment you, you on are my a own body and my own bone. dinosaur bones yes. and I'm getting old. Yeah, <laughs> That's a different type of insurance <laughs> that we need on you. Melanie, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Some great information and great, great tips as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've been joined by Melanie Wilcox, who's the Executive Vice President of Personal Risk Services at Chubb. Uh, Faisal, we've got, um, you and I are... are to Canadian families that have dementia or, you know, exposed to dementia, you through your dad, me through my mom. Um, my journey's a little, been a little bit longer than yours. Um, uh, but there's some challenges to that. And one of the experiences you had recently with your family is a trip. Yeah. So my father's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's fairly recently, dementia for about a little bit less than a year. Yep. Let's call it a year. Um, and we decided to take him on a family trip mm -hmm. considering some of the fears that we're worried about in the future and this one is a good time for all of us to get together and everything so we head off to mexico and i don't think i was fully appreciative of some of the issues and concerns that can that can occur uh during during a trip like that um and so i it was it was challenging and then on the way back i'm talking to my family i'm like i'd love to do another trip with my father again 
happened because I know a lot more now yep. after the first one. But where do we take them? What are some of the places that would be, I'd say, Alzheimer's dementia friendly? You know, well, and it turns out there is dementia yeah. friendly uh, tourism, and it's on the rise. Why? Unfortunately, because dementia, I think, is on the rise, right? Right. And so we've got Cindy Bond, community educator at Alzheimer's Calgary, to tell us all about this. Let's talk about dementia friendly tourism. Uh, Cindy, give us an idea of what's uh, some of the benefits for traveling uh, for someone that has dementia. Let's start there. Yeah, um, I think it's so individual. Um, it really depends on the person's life history as well as where they are in their dementia journey, but definitely travel can have so many benefits. Um, some could be the physical activity of travel, learning new things, trying new things, um, staying socially connected, all those can be so wonderful, depending on the person. Is it also dependent on, Cindy, where, where that person is uh, in their journey with dementia as well? It does, um, you know, at some point, uh, the, the benefits or I guess the problems, risks outweigh the benefits? And if so, what, what, you know, what should you be looking for? My first go-to response for that would be talk to your doctor. What is the doctor recommending? Um, because someone living with dementia, like no two people are the same, correct? So um, it would really depend where they are on their journey. Do they have a lot of anxiety around people? Um, do they have uh, behaviors that can be surprising for others? Um, things like that to be aware of. But talk to your doctor first, I think. So, Faisal, you, so this is your first experience. This new, yep. you know, your dad's new in his journey with uh, dementia. Your family is new in their journey. This is your first travel experience. To the extent you're comfortable, maybe share with the, you know, the listeners, the audience, the viewers, what that, you know, what your expectation was, and maybe where some of the big gaps were there. So, so let's start with the gaps, and I can, I can, I can then flip it to where um, I, I didn't probably set proper expectations. Um, I had him in a room on his own. Mm -hmm. Um, the hotel put him on a different floor than me. Oh yeah. Um, didn't realize or didn't think the gap here was think that he would in the middle of the night, just get up and start walking around. Right. Didn't, didn't think about that. So that was, that was a gap right there for sure. Um, I didn't appreciate the fact that his, he's a creature of routine. Right. And when I took him out of that routine, put him into, into Mexico, He's disoriented to a bit. Yep. And so learning those things raw in the moment was the challenge. Looking back, now I can do things differently if we're to go on another trip. But I think, I don't know if the doctor, uh, going back to your point, Cindy, would have been able to tell me those things because it's fairly new diagnosis in his in his journey. Yep. Uh, and, and so it's more of a, you know, test kind of process, see how things work. But one thing I, I could have done differently is start doing some research online. Alzheimer's Calgary has a lot of stuff on their websites. Of course, Alzheimer's Canada, a lot of stuff you can do a bit of research about traveling with somebody who's been diagnosed. I did that after the fact. Right. So not not the right thing to do, but but that's now I know more. So I think if anybody has taken their first trip, do the research, talk to doctor, like Cindy said, um, and, and I try to get an idea of where things are. I'm, I'm at, I was at a disadvantage because my father 
is living on his own. Yep. He's not in my home. That's right. So I don't see you him don't see day it. to day yep. and how his routine is and, and what he needs to have. Yep. So, so just from an overall uh, viewpoint, there's a lot of gaps if you don't do a little bit of advanced planning. So now that I know what I know, Cindy, let's talk about some of the destinations that are out there that maybe my father or other people that have dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, are are probably most um, acceptable to go to. Well, I I'm hearing there's like there's great places in Australia. You want to be mindful of different destinations that offer um, a slow pace, a lot of stimulation around um, the senses, so hearing and seeing and um, touching, being able to touch certain things as well. Um, and I, certainly I would recommend asking the travel agency of what would be appropriate. Like you said earlier, you know, a trip to Mexico, let you learn a lot of different things. Maybe it's a trip to Banff um, overnight and starting small and going on a hike if that's what your person would love. So yeah, it doesn't have to be all the way to Australia or even the UK. Uh, we have great travel destinations here in Canada as well. When we talk about the term dementia-friendly tourism, is are there are there certain uh, destinations, are there certain resorts or facilities that are catering to people with dementia or families that have somebody with dementia, or is just the notion that uh, that traveling can be a beneficial exercise or activity for people with dementia? I think both. I think there are uh, dementia-friendly destinations. Talking to a travel agent would be, um, you know, top of mind for that. Um, but definitely, um, people are becoming more and more about dementia-friendly activities um, as well for travel. And I think it's interesting, Cindy, that um, most recently, governments have now stepped up and started providing information. In the UK, a 30-page dementia-friendly tourism guide has been now published on the on the uh, government body's Visit England and Visit Scotland's website. So there's, there's more and more information about this um, that allow people to do a little bit more research yep. than, you know, cross your fingers, hope it all works out on this trip kind yeah. of mentality. So uh, it's good to see that there are, there are, there's more, more, more information and data out there that you can, that can help you. Yeah. Um, Cindy, we got to leave it there. We're quickly running out of time. I want to just thank you very much for bringing attention to, um, uh, to this idea of dementia friendly tourism. We appreciate that. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on today. Such a great topic. We've been joined by Cindy Bond, community educator of the Alzheimer's uh, of Alzheimer's Canada. So, Dave, when we look at um, issues like Alzheimer's, dementia, or other risks that come up from a health perspective, that's non-dementia related. You find people. One of the concerns when we talk to people at at our seminars, our workshops, our community sessions, um, they they say to us one of their biggest fears of the future is healthcare. Yeah. And the unknown of healthcare and it's the services that will be available, and I think where people are starting to trying to think about, but not properly plan because they don't know how to do it yet, is planning for uh, healthcare services as part of their retirement plan. So what we've done in our in our team is actually build a strategy on how to help individuals not only talk about 
in the event of incapacity, who's going to be your power of attorney? Who's going to be your personal? Right. And I'm saying in that tone because those are basic <clears throat> stuff that yeah. that need to be addressed. And that's basics. But what about the, the the jobs of the individual and where everything goes? And I think this is where when you start getting what we call the health bucket, you you start to build a strategy of just in case. In the event something happens, how do you want it to be taken care of? Who's going to take care of it? How much is it going to cost for the care and services that you want? Um, Faisal, we, let's discuss some of the flaws of, um, of retirement planning, because I think that people uh, make a number of, of either critical missteps or have a misunderstanding of the process that leads to some problems. And, and part of it is how our industry has placed it. Initially, uh, a retirement plan was based on answering the key question, what kind of income can I have throughout my life? Right. Either an after-tax or pre-tax, after inflation or before inflation. That's not the point. The point is what kind of income is an income calculation. Correct. Okay. And then fast forward into, into uh, the planning world's history they started being goal-oriented on major goals, goals like education or house purchase. Um, and, and, and that became the next round or add-on to the system of financial planning. But as people started getting older and into retirement, they stopped forecasting their needs in the future. So as a young family, let's, say, let's pick on them, their concerns are, I want to buy a house because I want to get a bigger home. I've got more kids coming. I got, And they can actually predict things that are going to happen in the future right. with some reasonable assurance. There. So they want to be financially prepared for that. In retirement, not too many forecasts of the future of expenses that come up until they come up. Right. And let me give you an example. A couple in their, in their 70s chatting with me, they were their listeners of the show, and they're like, well, we need a plan for our, our cash flow. How does that look from when you look at a second opinion, Faisal? I looked at their, their numbers. I said, you know, conceptually, I think you can be okay with your cash flow. Um, tell, me, tell me a bit more about your lifestyle. They tell me that they have a car, yeah. two cars. Uh, one car is like 10 years old. Uh, when are you buying a car? What do you mean? You don't anticipate replacing your car right. ever? Right. Huh. Never thought about that. Okay. But how, how old's your house? It's a nice bungalow, 1976, south end of the city. When was the last time you had renovations? Oh, in the 80s. You don't plan on doing any renovations in your home? Hmm, haven't thought about that. It's like it comes up when it comes up. Right. And so sometimes the feeling from my end is that you get thrown the problem when the problem arises, I, I can only imagine what doctors go through. Right. Same thing. Right. Like the doctor will come to, you go to the doctor, oh, my knee hurts. Or, oh, I have this problem. Oh, and they write a prescription and off you go. Right. Until the next problem. It's a very reactive yep. system. Yep. When I find retirement planning is no longer a proactive plan, it turns into reactive because people didn't think about big ticket expenses going out. Potentially, or, or at least planning for it. Right. And so then you get these big spikes of capital that you need, potentially big spikes in income, potentially drawbacks or clawbacks in your, in your tax situation. Oh, my God, why? It's not working. I can't believe it's not working in my retirement as, all, as I envisioned it. Well, you didn't vision these issues. So I have, I think, 
the flaws of retirement planning come into play when people don't look at some of the big ticket items that are they're going to experience over the longer term and need to kind of just map it out. You bought a car, it's not going to last for you forever. Generally speaking, the average car stays for seven years if you bought it. If you lease it, three years. So it's going to be another capital expenditure coming out of there and so on and so forth. So I, I, I think this is a big concern when it comes to the shock of a retirement plan and the, where, where it becomes flawed because it's, it's, it's only focused on income planning, not, not future goal planning. I'm going to actually get a little bit more basic. My, my frustration is, is similar, but where some of the flaws come from uh, on a very, very basic level is I think people equate retirement to their savings and their portfolio. That's it. Retirement equals portfolio. I, I think you get a little bit more sophisticated when you start talking about cash flows. <clears throat> um, but I, I think I think it's that basic because I see, you know, you get ups and downs on monthly, daily, yearly basis. And it's shocking to me um, how people, we get trapped in that short term. Your retirement isn't your portfolio. It's complex. It goes beyond that, including all the things you talked yeah. about, right? Yeah. Not all cash flows created the same. Even if you were in the cash flow camp, where do I get my cash flow from to be tax efficient and tax effective? Can, can I add to that one point? I think sure. people need to understand. Let's pick out, and I'm going to make up a number here. 4% interest rate. Okay. Is 4% interest the same as 4% capital gain? No. no. And so the 4% is the number you put into the financial software that says if you get that rate of return on average, and in many financial uh, software, it's every year. Right. Then you've then you're going to win. Right. You're going to be fine. You'll be okay with your your cash flow. What it doesn't always take into account is the tax exposure, and on top of that, the risk exposure. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it comes down to what's the asset allocation mix, and let's uh, let's put an assumption of a certain rate of return for certain type of investments that you're going to have in the portfolio, and that assumes you have those same type of investments for the rest of your life. So you were predicting, uh, I think it was last show, uh, maybe the show before, that this year, um, uh, you know, firms are going to start coming out with their numbers on their portfolio. <laughs> They've done that, Dave. I know. They've done that. This is hilarious because I, after we talked about this, I'm like, watch, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And here I go, and, and, and I, get, I get inundated with all these companies' reports, and then they all their bragging rights. And so with companies... It's a mutual fund company. They come out and they go, look, surprise, look at our, look at our numbers. You should be investing in our fund and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I get, I get four different emails from four different fund companies yep. and they put out, guess what? Our, take a look at our 10 year performance. Yep. Woohoo. Look how great we did. Number one in the, in the 10 year category or right. top 10% or top quartile or whatever numbers they want to, yep. they want to brag about. Okay. Not a single one of them talked about how much risk you have to take on in order to get that. Right. Not a single one. Right. And I'm just like, can somebody please educate the the audience that's reading these emails that says, how about the best rate of return for the risk you're going to take? Right. Because there's some fantastic returns out there. Fantastic. If you can stomach the risks. On that's exactly right. And, and, and we talk about, again, there's some flawed thinking when you get to retirement. The rules of investing change. We talk about that. Risk becomes very important in retirement. It's a 
It's called the sequence of returns. Anybody yep. that wants to do the research about it. Yep. But it becomes really important about the timing of that. So, so you you predicted it. We had a chuckle before we came on <laughs> air here. today. That is, boy, here we just got hit with it. And people need to be very careful about this. Here's where understanding what the risk you have to accept in order to get a similar type of return that's happened in the past is very important. You talked about sequence of returns. And be, we talk about this in our seminars on a regular basis because it's a mathematical risk. Right. Now, what's a mathematical risk that we don't always talk about is the psychological reaction oh, that yeah. you have Absolutely. when you see your portfolio down. Okay. Everybody in our industry knows when the markets go down, people will react. Some will capitulate. If there was no capitulation, if people wouldn't just sell their in portfolio, right. they, they get scared, right? And right. they, and they, they sell a cash. Or, yeah. It's down. The world's going to come to an end or whatever their thesis is. And they sell. Every single commercial that we see about performance is under the assumption you never sold. Correct. Every single uh, uh, commercial about fees is assuming you have no psychological reaction to anything that happens. Every single commercial that we see about advisors and so forth do not talk about how they're going to help you with the psychology of money versus just the risk of the money. Right. The psychology of what happens, you watch and mark my words, we see another 10, 15, 20% hit in the markets. Let's see how much money exits the market. Yeah. Let's see how much money. And that tells me that people are not comfortable. Okay, let's wrap it up on that note. Um, we've got a seminar coming up to try to make sense of all of what we've just said. We're going to put it all together on Tuesday, March 5th, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Okay, thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on QR Calgary. On behalf of Faisal and myself, Dave, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.